Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 275. Interview with Patrick Swenson. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. (laughs) And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Public. Sci-Fi Public. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. Just a quick introduction from me today so we can get right into our interview with Patrick Swenson, author, editor, and publisher. If you haven't heard his name before, odds are, if you read science fiction and fantasy, you've read one of his books. So I'm looking forward to that discussion, and we will focus mostly on his new novel, The Ultra Thin Man, published by Tor Books. This episode is brought to you by Thrones and Bones Frostborn, the new middle grade novel from Lou Anders. If you haven't already, I strongly encourage you to listen to episode 273, in which Lou joined us to discuss the novel and discuss, among many things, his trip to Norway as he researched for the novel, and the many different game applications that are being born uh, from this book is really cool stuff no pun intended with frost born but i couldn't help myself uh <laughs> the the book is getting rave reviews uh, all around if you read middle grade fantasy if you have a child who would enjoy it or you may enjoy it yourself i definitely recommend you check the book out you can find a copy by coming to adventures in sci-fi publishing.com and you'll see a picture of thrones and bones on the uh on the homepage under our sponsors And that's one way you can find the book or just go to thronesandbones.com, written by Lou Anders. If you haven't been by the website in a a week or so, you may not know we have some new articles up there for you to check out. Elizabeth Eckhart wrote this very cool piece about The Simpsons. Um, I don't watch a lot of The Simpsons myself, but I do know it's going into its 26th season, which is amazing. And that a lot of different science fiction uh, media personalities have appeared on the show over the years. So she put together the top five celebrity appearances on The Simpsons so far. Uh, on the list, I'm just going to give you two teasers, Leonard Nimoy and David Duchovny. And everyone everyone she puts on there is someone related to genre, or at least the world of science. So come check it out. It's all, it was a great fun uh, thing for her to do. I really enjoyed reading it. And there's little YouTube clips under each uh, guest, so you can see a clip of them in action. And if you had, a guest, a favorite celebrity appearance on the simpsons that you thought was better or should have been included in the top five then leave it in the comment section would love to hear uh who you guys enjoyed personally i wanted richard dean anderson on there but you know she didn't agree with me on that one (laughs) also we have some new book reviews for you to check out including 100 sideways miles by andrew smith and timothy c ward uh, wrote this review he's a big fan of this author so come check that out and world of fire by James Lovegrove, a very nice review written by Jared Cooper. So come check out the book reviews if you haven't in a while, and uh, 
You can maybe find something new that you want to read. Forthcoming soon, we'll have a book review of The Ultra Thin Man as well, and uh, several more in the pipeline. So keep coming to our website if you could. Lots of content for you other than just the podcast. Congratulations to the fan who won a copy of Thrones and Bones, Frostborn, on Facebook. We announced a Facebook and Twitter-only book contest, and the winner was announced on Facebook. So congratulations. I don't have his name in front of me right now. But uh, if you entered that contest, please do check back on that post to see if your name was listed as the winner. And then send me your name and address, and I'll get the book in your hands. All right, that's about it for now. Let's get into this interview with Patrick, and we will see you again next time. Come join us online uh, at AISFP Podcast on Twitter, and then Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing on Facebook. Take care. Patrick Swenson is a graduate from Clarion West, the founder of Tailbones Magazines, uh, magazine, excuse me, which he edited from 2000 to 2009, and founder and publisher of Fairwood Press, which recently published uh, novels by, or I should say books, by J.A. Pitts, Mark Teppo, Michael Bishop, and others. Fairwoodpress.com, if you want to learn more about that. Uh, but today, Patrick is here primarily to discuss his first novel, The Ultra Thin Man, published by Tor Books. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. I'm just going to dive right in with this, all right, and talking about the sure. ultra-thin man. And I always like to start at the beginning. That always seems like a good place to start. Uh, can you remember... <laughs> There's a uh, song there. <laughs> can you remember the when you first had the initial idea and when you first started working on this novel? Oh, so you're going to start off with a really complicated question first, aren't you? <laughs> I already warned uh, you up before we started, so now so- I'm all ready to go. Yeah, all the all the secrets are coming out. So um, this novel had its gestation over 15 years ago. It started because actually my brother uh, and I wanted to do some collaborative writing um, when he moved down to California. So just kind of stay in touch. And I credit my brother for the title. He just threw the title out there, and we started throwing some characters together and just putting them in a chapter or two and going back and forth. Well, this was a year by year process. I wait for a year and then I get a chapter and he'd wait for a year and he'd get a chapter. And then sometimes it was two years because we really were just doing our other things. And and at one point there were five years had passed and, and nobody was writing anything. And, and I said, can I run with this? Because I really thought there was a, a good idea here. I, um, and we weren't outlining or anything and I don't write that way anyway. Um, just throw people into some, some danger and have them figure it out for me. So he said, yeah, he was, he has his own photography business and, uh, he just said, absolutely go for it. So, but of course, Tailbones magazine was going during that point as well. And by the way, it, uh, Tailbones actually started in 1995. So it went, Uh, 14 years. The press, Fairwood Press, started in 2000. Oh, okay. Okay. Although I had had Fairwood Press as an umbrella company in case I decided to do books, which of course I I did later. Um, So yeah, it's actually a 14-year run, which is about the time, uh, you know, when I wasn't really writing on the novel much. So that's kind of how it got started. And, you know, so I would say that between myself and my brother, there was about 20,000 words in there originally the first quarter, you know, about eighth of it was his. And, and then after I, I was let, 
uh, given the chance to run with it. You know, obviously I started to move things around, switch things up, uh, delete, add. Um, a lot of my, my brother's stuff is still in there mm-hmm. in those opening chapters. Um, but the last um, 70, 75,000 words were uh, all mine that came out basically in the last four months of 2009 when I finally stopped Tailbones Magazine. Surprise, surprise. It, was a, it ended up being a good choice and, and finished, finished the book. So there's a long history to it because I could say the answer was like, oh, four months. You know, boom, got the book in four months, but you have to add the 15 years in there. <laughs> That's a little uh, sideline. So. so would you say that during the time you're working on Tailbones that that was um, fulfilling a lot of your creative juices? So you, you're writing less during that time? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I had I had people, including editors, tell me, so you know you won't be able to write while you're editing. I said, yes, I can. Like Dean Wesley Smith was like saying, yeah, I know you won't. And he was pretty much right. I just had a hard time writing while I was doing that. Plus, uh, teaching, I teach full-time uh, English. Uh, that's a creative drain as well. But um, the magazine definitely helped with that. And also, I learned a lot. You know, you, you read uh, read slush for fourteen years. You, you learn a lot. <laughs> you learn a lot. And I didn't have first readers. I read it. I read read it all. Well, my ex wife and I started it. You know, and we shared shared those duties. But and then all the other hats I had to wear about publishing too, because it was just most of the time it was just me um, working on it. Hmm. So it was a combination of I was still getting my you know creative juices flowing, but also learning a lot. At the same time, and there's something to be said that I wasn't ready to finish Ultra Thin Man until I had that that schooling, as it were. Hmm. Well, I don't want to give away a spoiler here, so if this isn't <laughs> too much of a spoiler, tell us what the title means, the Ultra Thin Man. Ah, uh, well, um, there's a little bit of spoilerish, so I'm not going to give you everything, but I can I can tell you again. My, my brother came up with it, so I wasn't even thinking at the time about the noir connection. To the Thin Man, uh, back 15 years ago, Dashiell Hammett. Um, and again, had no idea when we started. And even after I took it over, really didn't have an idea how the Thin Man thing was going to come out. But organically, it came out in, in the uh, in the plot. And the Publishers Weekly Review and a few other reviews have, have mentioned the Thin Man thing, which is actually a term you don't find out until a little bit later in the novel. Um as far as what the thin men are, but uh, they are um, the aliens who are involved in this are are creating um, copies. There's a process that uh, was why it comes into being a thin man reference, and a thin man is reference for you know male or female, regardless. Anybody who's gone through the process and has been has been copied. It's that you know P Dub called it cloning. It's not really cloning. There's you know there's some background science in there. Um, and my guys are detectives and they don't know the science so much and I don't have them explain it much, but, um, so that's kind of where it is. And the ultra, uh, I'm going to save that what the ultra actually means as a little bit too spoilerish. Okay. Okay. Well, you can, but it does definitely have, um, definitely does have a, a meaning to it. Yeah. Well, you definitely, you gave us a little taste of the plot there. Why don't we just, if you could just tell us a little bit about, uh, the story, how it opens up. I mean, uh, automatically when I started reading it, I mean, I was just thrust into a very complex world of politics and intrigue, and there's terrorism going on. And so, I mean, you just, it, there's no buildup. Just boom, here we go. I'm like, all yeah, right, this is awesome. Are. It's like <laughs> game on. Put, yeah. them in, put them in hot water. Uh, the, 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 fir- the first main character is reviewing 
uh, all of it of an incident where uh, a woman with the, uh, who's also interacting with an undercover agent um, inexplicably falls 100 floors to her death and she was supposedly involved with the, the leader of the terrorist uh, network and this is a movement of worlds, right? This is a huge, huge interstellar kind of thing and they're hunting this guy and so this was somebody, a suspect on their list. And then in the next chapter you see um, the moon of that planet which they think might be a terrorist outpost uh, suddenly basically blows up or is thrown into uh, into the orbit of the main planet and eventually um, slams into the planet or at least big chunks of it and there's so a lot of death and destruction right off in the first few pair a few chapters and then there's a transcontinental conduit it's a there's six huge massive towers on this uh, on one of the other planets with a very thin and I might even say ultra thin wire um, between it that's a it's a weather control device um, but of course, maybe it's not. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, and then it's try and there's a sabotage attempt on it, and literally one of the towers is is dragged, uh, pulled out and dragged through the city. And there's more death and destruction. So in the first three four chapters, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff, as you said, going on there. And uh, this was kind of what happened when we started the process of going back and forth. And now I was going like, well, what does this all mean? This is crazy stuff. This is awesome. I got to find out what it is. And, you know, you guys are my detectives. Detect, figure it out for me. And uh, I followed along. And uh, it all kind of worked out. So they're both kind of on the run at some point because they find out that their intelligence agency is actually after them a little bit. And they've set them up Mm. to take a fall for something even bigger than the terrorist movement. That's where the alien plot comes into, into it. So... Um, they're on separate planets. They're separated and trying to figure out the mystery and stay alive, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I wanted to ask you about, uh, the two protagonists here. I want to say their names correctly. Those at Crowell and Brindos. Yeah. Dave, Dave Crowell and, um, Alan Brindos. Okay. And, uh, you know, we, we do follow them throughout the story. And I have to admit that early in the book, um, I found myself relating a bit more to Crowell. And, and I think the reason why as he seemed like a man who was kind of trapped a, a little bit between his responsibilities, his sense of duty, but also, you know, his own desires for his life. Right. Which, you know, he, he just wants to take a break, basically. He has all <laughs> these other things he wants to do. But can you talk a little bit about those two characters and, and just what they're like and maybe some of the stuff you were trying to explore through them? Yeah. Well, it's funny. Crowell was my character, right? When, uh, when Paul and I started, my brother... And I started kind of doing the early work, and he was taking the Brindos character, and I took the Crowell character. So I think there's a little bit more of Crowell in me, right? Um, but, yeah, and he was kind of the one who was on on stage more, and he was more of the, the noir-style detective. You know, there's the femme fatale involved, uh, you know, the old lost love. And um, so I think partially... And then, and Brindos, he's he's an orphan. Um, he's been in foster homes. He doesn't have much of a past. Nobody knows him uh, terribly well, other than Crowell, because they worked together for a number of years in their own agency. Um, so yeah, and Crowell is is definitely conflicted. Although he does, you know, tend to diffuse it with lightheartedness, and whereas Brindos is pretty cynical, 
about things. He doesn't have as much to lose, but he has the most to lose as we find out eventually. Is that one of the reasons behind the POV change from first person to third person because you and your brother were working on the different characters originally? Correct. Actually, when we started and even as I finished it and sent it off to my editor at Tor, both characters were first person viewpoints. And it was my editor, David Hartwell, who said, I don't like alternating. I think one should be third and I think the third should be Brindos because Crowell's on stage more and he feels like more like the first person uh, narrator. When I first noticed that happening, I was, I'll admit, I was confused at first. I picked it up pretty quickly, though. I'm not, you know, I'm not too um, stupid. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of alternating first. But and I had a friend who, who has a, a book series with Tor who said, dude, my, all my other viewpoint characters are third and my main character is first, so it can be done. And right. I actually hadn't read too much myself that way. Right. But then I hadn't read an awful lot of alternating first person books either with two first person narrators so true so are you happy with how that turned out yeah i think so in the in the long run um when i was asked to change it i started just going going through first of all and changing pronouns and then you know the introspection is different and it also gave me a chance to make sure i was doing enough to differentiate their voices and could i have done better i probably could you know and i think i'm finding as i'm working on uh, a new book, the the sequel actually, um, that I feel more comfortable with with that when I'm doing there. So it was it was a good decision, I think. Awesome. So there's a sequel coming. Okay, I was going to ask that later. Yeah. I oh, we can wait till later. I can talk now if you want. If you want. <laughs> okay, no, let's save that one. Let's save that one. Let me ask you this instead. <laughs> uh, th- there's so much happening in this story. Uh, how do you? How did you balance? the needs of the plot with the needs of the character development and the character exploration, you know, were the two, cause there's so much going on. Were the two, were they fighting for screen time in your own mind? Uh, how did you balance the two? You know, that's a hard, that's a hard question to answer because of the alternating and the different characters and they were in different worlds. And I was still in the first draft discovering the plot and cause that's what I do. And there wasn't even an instance in this book where I had to stop and pull them back and say, no, 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 you can't go down that avenue. You got to go this way. Um, it just it just worked out. I've already found I've had to pull in characters in book two, but um, so the plot came or- pretty organically as the as the characters were were working on uh, the mystery, and that's why kind of how I approached it. These you know these are detectives. What are kind of what kind of things are they going to do and what kind of things are they going to run into and how are they going to react to it as characters and related to the mystery and the overall plot. So I know I didn't spend too much time thinking about that um, as I wrote the first draft, but went back in, of course, and and tried to make things mesh. I don't know if I answered that, but... Yeah, no, I know it's kind of a weird question, but, you know, I just noticed how... You know, I still felt like I was getting to know the characters well, even though there was so much happening. And it seems like most books, they're either very heavy in plot and action, and you don't get to know the characters, or it's just all about the characters with not as much story. Um, so you had an interesting balance, I thought. Thank you. Um, and I've seen reviews of, you know, negative either way. <laughs> you know, saying I didn't do enough character, or I didn't do enough world building, or I didn't do enough plot, you know. Um, an early agent who looked at it said, 
you know, kept me updated and said, I love the plot of this. I love the plot of this. I'm not, I'm iffy about the characters, you know, and that was early. And I've, I've actually had changed quite a bit after that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just figured this is what these characters are going to see and they don't know what they don't know. Um, and so I had to keep that in mind too. Mm-hmm. Um, cause this is an interstellar, um, you know, tapestry here and they're out of their element in many ways. They were, you know, small private eye business and they're thrown into this thing. So, they have to survive, but they're also trying to figure things out in their limited knowledge, and and that's partially the author who didn't know yet. Um, and I, that's that's what I loved about, and that's why I've always loved about mysteries is, and and writing this way as well is I get to solve the mystery as the reader does. In a way, I'm usually I have a knowledge of what's going to happen at the end before uh, before then, of course, and about halfway through I usually know the gist of it. Reminds me of that Star Trek The Next Generation episode, uh, Under Decks, I think it was called, where it focuses on a few ensigns, right? And, and they're going, to, they don't understand why they're being ordered to do the things that they're being ordered to do. And All right. Yeah. You is get, that what, uh, is, I'm sorry, is that what Scaldi's Red Shirts is about? I mean, I, <laughs> I haven't read that one yet, but. Well, that one has a lot more. I, I, read, I read Red Shirts. There's a lot more going on outside of that. But, but yeah, similar thing where. Um, yeah, they're, they're, you know you, they, you do have some of the command figures in there, but in the yeah. Star Trek episode, you really only see Picard from their point of view, and he's a real hard ass, just giving right. them orders and sending them to their death. And yeah, <laughs> well, there was a, a Babylon Five episode like that too, and I don't remember the name where they focused on one of the workers or something in the in the you know the bowels of the ship and, and their point of view the whole time. But like you said, they don't know what they don't know. They don't um, know what they don't know. So science fiction and noir. Uh, why do you think they go so well together? And what are the dangers of combining the two? Because to me, I'm just going to give my own thoughts. It seems like it'd be real simple to, to take a mystery and just put it on a space station or whatever. Now you have a sci-fi noir. But to me, that seems like a bit of a cheat, that there has to be uh, a better blending of the two than that. So what are your thoughts on that? What are, what are the things you think people should watch out for when writing those type of novels? One of the, from the start, too, is like, oh, hey, it's a, it's a Dashiell Hammett you know, uh, knockoff or a uh, mashup with 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 science fiction and and really all it has in common is is the title and the, and some of the noir tropes. Um, I mean, I think there's one one fedora in there and there's a trench coat and there's a femme fatale. But um, I didn't try and copy the story uh, of the Thin Man or a noir story in particular. I still wanted to tell my science fiction story, mm. um, and I still I, I think they go well together because they're both mysterious. I mean, when you when I read a science fiction, I remember when I was a young kid, and you know that whole sense of awe and wonder, and and turning the page, going, "Wow, what's happening next? What's you know, what's this? What's this alien about? Or what's this? What's this world they keep talking about? Or this new device? And where did it go?" Um, versus the same thing with a mystery, like, "Oh gosh, this guy's dead. Who killed him? You know, who's going to solve this um, mystery?" And so I. I it wasn't so much that I thought too much about being careful about how I blended them. I just thought actually they were, they were pretty good bed partners to start with. Mm. And, and certainly with the more of the space opera feel of the book too. Um, you know, I had more gimmies and a little more leeway space opera noir. And so I, I, I heard somebody call it and I kind of liked that because I was kind of getting tired of saying it's space opera, noir, mystery thrillers, you know, I want to ask you some questions about the themes in the book. 
And some of the themes I saw are themes about identity, both self-identity, how other people view us for good or better, a prejudice, um, prejudices, I should say. I can't talk right now. But it's a, it's a reminder that science fiction is such a, a fabulous vehicle to explore issues in the here and now, you know, the things that we're, we deal with today. Um, can, can you oh. talk a little bit about the themes in the book that you wanted to explore? Absolutely. Um, yeah, it was funny because just I have a science fiction class I teach at the high school that's pretty popular, and I was giving them my intro today. And I talked to them about that very thing about the science fiction of uh, you know of tomorrow, um, or whenever it was postulated out to be, it was always a commentary on the time it was written as well, or many times. So that was interesting. You mentioned that um, prejudice is one of the ones that that was pretty apparent. I mean, I kind of set out to to deal with that with all, the whole the idea about the the known aliens, the helks, the which are huge and gigantic compared to us and humans and elks, they don't get along very well. And um, so, in fact, they, they call them hulks as a colloquial, you know, negative expression. Um, but they're, and then eventually in the book, two, you know, a human and a elk have to work together. And one of the terrorist leader is a, is a elk. And so that's not helping anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did want to explore that idea of, of, of difference and I mean I think any science fiction story where you're talking with about aliens you know it's a way it's a mirror for for us to see ourselves and you know as humans the way we talk and the way we think um, you know I think again since we mentioned next generation all the you know all the data data geez all the data episodes you know we're always data trying to be more human and figure out what it meant to be human and that was a, a opportunity for the writers to explain how what we felt, and so that's kind of what I was doing with the prejudice thing there, and identity. Right, Brindos has hardly any other any identity, not a lot of background. Crowell has a family. His mom uh, is really all that's left to him. His dad um, disappeared when he was sixteen, drowned in a lake, so they say. Book two plot point, um, <laughs> and. And then all of a sudden you have this uh, identity switching. It's not switching. I can't say too much, but suddenly you're looking at somebody and you're really not sure who they are. I mean, you can't trust anybody. And then one of one of uh, one of the characters in the novel becomes something he's not, and he knows that. And then at some point he doesn't know that, and he only knows the other character until somebody else brings him back and. That whole idea of uh, it's kind of like the human condition. Like, who am I? Uh, I have this ability to be good, but I have this ability to be bad. And as it turns out, in his case, it's a human versus Hulk thing. Mm. Um, and they've already seen a Hulk is a, is a bad thing. And all of a sudden, he's put into his point of view and going like, hey, this is actually pretty cool. Mm. And then, no, it's not pretty cool. And somebody slaps him and says, no, it's not cool. You need to figure this out. Um Plus their own issues with their own identity. So, um, and characters are coming and going, and you think they're done, and they're not. Um, you meet a character in chapter one, and it's like, no, she's not done, even though you know she just took a high dive. So um, that's kind of what I was playing with their identity. You mentioned the third one, or not? You had identity prejudice. Um, those are the only two I mentioned. Those, yeah, those are the main things that I, you know, playing with there. Um, you know, and I'm 
so I love Shakespeare and I teach some Shakespeare in my, my, my AP classes. And, you know, he was always messing around with, with identity and, you know, everybody, you know, cross-dressing and um, pretending to be somebody else and uh, mistaken identity as well. And, uh, and of course, uh, Crowell quotes some, some Shakespeare every once in a while because mm-hmm. uh, he loves all the old, the old stuff. And that's a part of it, too, is he's not so certain about his own race's identity because the humans have been thrust in a little bit ahead of time into this century because they got some alien help with some technology. And Crowell and a lot of others kind of are nostalgic for the old stuff. So there's a mix of old and new in this book. And, um, and, and then old is going away, and it's kind of part of Crowell's identity and some of the humans' identity because um, they've been kind of bootstrapped, picked up a little bit by this other alien race. Well, and that's another question here. How does advanced technology change you? Not just you as an individual, but change societies, change um, morals, if you will. Uh, right. I mean, look how much, how quickly society changes today, right? And I, and I think social media and cell phones and all that are a big part of it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. I mean, in the fact, you think about when I started this book 15 plus years ago. So the communication devices they're using in my book are not the same that we started with when, <laughs> when I first started going. Like, I mean, it was called a code card, but you know, when I picked it up in 2009, I said, you know, technology has gone a long way already in the, in, in phone technology, cell phone technology and how we, so I went online and I just like looked, what's the most far out there thing that we, they see is might be on the horizon. And then I said, all right, now let's take, kick it up a notch you know, a hundred years out from, from here and get a rough idea what I think it's going to be because it's exponential. How fast, how fast is changing the technology um, and how much it changes us, right? The whole thing about uh, any uh, advanced technology, right? Is it indistinguishable from magic? Right, right. You know, the hunter gatherers of, you know, the old days or the agricultural revolution or the industrial revolution and you throw a cell phone in their hand today, you know, go back in time and, you know, it's like, oh, magic, Right. So uh, technology is always changing, changing our views. And since it's going so fast, it's sometimes hard to keep your head around it. Yeah. And I'm lucky that, you know, and I'm, I teach, I've taught, this is my 30th year of teaching. I'm starting this year and um, I'm, I'm in there in the trenches with high school kids who, uh, who, and now I have a son who's coming up there too. And, and, you know, I was just looking at his algebra tonight and I was like holy crap I don't even remember most of that stuff and he's in seventh grade taking it early and so at least though I know what the technology is and the kids help and the lingo and, and all that kind of thing um, and going to conventions and, and learning along the way but it's tough it's a tough learning curve yeah that's why if you're writing near future science fiction you better be a fast writer <laughs> that's, that's true that's true you know, Patrick, for so many years, about 1995, you've been reading great stories and editing great stories and publishing great stories. And, um, oh, oh, by the way, I still have some rejection letters you sent me years ago. But, but they were well-deserved bad, bad stories, bad stories. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. Um, but <laughs> what, what did all of that editing and all that reading teach you to make you a better writer? Uh, well... I'd say number one thing right off the top is how to start a story. Um, because, you know, I had a slush pile and, you know, even for a small 
magazine like Tailbones, I'd get a couple hundred submissions a month. And near the end, the last few years, I was doing twice a year. So you'd think uh, about 1,200 submissions per issue hmm. to go through, and I could pick eight stories. That's crazy. And, and most of those stories I didn't take, I was rejecting before I finished the first page, sometimes first paragraph, um, sometimes a title. And, and I, I always talk about this even with my, my school uh, students. as about, look, you, you need a good hook. You need a good thesis. You need a good title to bring them in. And there were just so many stories. You know, the whole, you know, he woke up kind of beginnings. Right. <laughs> um, and realizing, well, your story actually, you know, starts four pages later, but, you know, maybe the author didn't know. And so you're going through routines. It's like, no, in media res, you want to get in the middle of the action. You want to get a good jump off the thing. And, and, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be action. It could just be the writing itself. I, I, I just, I read something and going, nothing's happened here, but Oh my God, this first page, I just can't stop reading it. Right. Or this is, this piece is 8,000 words long and it's 3000 words over our limit, but I kept reading and I got to the end (laughs) and I bought that story. Um, so, you know, it taught me how to start a story and to get to know, character in a situation, a problem, the old classics right away, or if nothing else, you've got the writing, you've got the, the venue, you've got the, the cool idea, something in the opening to really get the reader because your reader is fickle, right? They're going to like, oh, next page, I don't want that. I'm going to read the dis- different story. Right. Uh, I got too many novels, so little time. Right. Um, so that was probably the, the biggest thing that Tailbones uh, taught me plus how to end the story as well because I did get to a lot of stories where I get to the end and go ah oh, dang it they had me uh, and it was not fixable I mean there were a few that I would ask for rewrites but not many um, so it was for me it was a, this mix that you know a story can be literate and almost literary but also be entertaining um, you know the ultra thin man is is not going to be you know appear on the advanced placement literature lists, you know, as, as a book of literary merit anytime soon. Um, but it's fun. It's got a plot. It's, it's um, entertaining, but, you know, it's got characters. And, uh, and I've read books better than mine even that I, I just love that are a mix of those, as opposed to sometimes, sometimes literary stories just by themselves. They go yawn, yawn, yawn. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, but then I I teach literary stories and going. This is a great book. Why why is it a great book? Right. And we we talk about the, the kind of things that make it a great book, and a lot of the same things that make a great literary book or a mainstream book great are the same things that make a good science fiction book great. I mean, a lot of goods and greats in that sense. Sorry. Well, as as long as you're not making your students read Silas Martyr, that's all I care about. I, I refuse. No, absolutely. That <laughs> one, there's a couple others on that list of in that read. So banned books. <laughs> <laughs> banned by your uh, by your instructor. <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not ask you about uh, Fairwood Press. How is the year going over there? And we know that we may have some folks listening who don't know what the the press is or what you do over there. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about it? Okay. Uh, yeah, Fairwood Press. Uh, I publish. Uh, it's you know, it's a small press. It's a used to call it independent press, but now the indie press thing is different, uh, or a micro press. 
but I do three to six titles a year. And again, this is just all my hats. I'm wearing at the time and running out of my house. I started in 2000. We, I did one book, did one book the next year, and then it just kind of slowly grew. But I can't do more than six or seven on my own without hiring people. And I've got a full-time job, and I'm, I'm not really willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a lot of collections, a lot of niche stuff. In fact, the first book we printed was Patrick O'Leary's collection, Other Voices, Other Doors. And, and he'd been in Tailbones a couple of times. I bought his first short story, actually. He'd already had a novel out from tour. Um, and he said, I have this collection. It's one-third fiction, one-third poetry, and one-third essay. New York's not interested in it, surprise. Um, would you like to publish it? And I said, yeah. Let me figure out how I might do that and get back to you. And that's when I started looking at options and the idea that I could do a, a micro press and, and not have it cost me an arm and a leg. And so, yeah, there's mostly story collections, but some novels, some, like you mentioned, Michael Bishop. I'm in the process now of reprinting most of his, his novels under a separate, um, I'm forgetting the name, what I want to say, uh, imprint, sorry. Mm-hmm. And, um, I reprinted uh, Alexi Panchin's 1969 Nebula Award winner, Rite of Passage, because um, it had been out of print. And I said, that's a crime. And I knew somebody who knew him. And do you want to get it in print? Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't take me as long to, to get something out there if I want to. And if I love it, I'll do it. And if I think it's going to have a chance, um, even if I don't think it'll do well, I said that it deserves to be out there. And, you know, you got Lost Leaders and you have some books that really punch up the the volume and give you keep you running, mm, right. um, and, and this year I'm doing five uh, books and only two of them are out. Um, the third one's almost out, and I got a few more to do before World Fantasy. A lot of times my summer break, when it's my prime writing time, is also my prime catch up on Fairwood time too. And suddenly summer is over, <laughs> and uh, school starting and going ah, pulling out my hair. And even last year, I said, you know, I'm only going to do three titles because I've got the book coming out next year and I should be working on book two. So I'm only going to do three. And I ended up doing five plus four standalone ebooks. Um, I have this tendency to avoid this word, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, if somebody like Michael Bishop comes to you and says, hey, and I said, just stop right there. Yes. The answer is yes. Um, <laughs> A lot of a lot of Fairwood titles were originally uh, Tail uh, Tailbones alums because I got to know them and their writing. I said, "Wow, you have a collection. Um, I'd love to do something with you if you're interested." And I kind of killed my R and D department when I stopped Tailbones, but I had a lot of people I'd met along the way too. And so, um, yeah, and I was going supposed to do three this year too, and I ended up five. And I not anything definite yes next year, but it could be four or five things without even blinking. Because I have a few things on the burner, <laughs> right? So it takes a lot of time, you know, plus teaching and trying to write. And you know, I have a twelve-year-old with with special needs, and um, it can be a little bit crazy sometimes. Speaking of things that you're doing, I know you've been on book tour, and that you have some more stops, some more places you're going to be uh, coming up. So where can folks find you and meet you and get a book signed? The uh, the bulk of the bulk of the tour is is done but in the seattle area next week on tuesday i'm i'm doing uh the Sufwa writers or reader series science fiction writers of america reader series and it's in kirkland washington it's on the east side of seattle um on tuesday at seven o'clock and i'm reading with 
Eileen Gunn and uh, Dara Metzger, two other writers. So it's a shared reading, and the University Bookstore will be selling books there, um, or if you already have one. It's a, it's a wonderful venue and a, and a fun time. I've been there to listen to other readers. And then immediately the next night, I do the same thing for Sufwa down in Portland at uh, McMiniman's School down there. Not sure of the address, um, but it's in Portland. And do the same thing, although it's myself and Eileen Gunn and Wendy Wagner um, reading there. And beyond that, I am at uh, Good Book Cafe in Sumner, Washington. It's my local bookstore. It's a combination used in a new bookstore. It's about 10 minutes from my house uh, for a three-hour sit-down and signing books during one of their little festivals Oh, cool! on that weekend on the 13th. And then I'll be at VCon in Vancouver in October and the World Fantasy Convention in Washington, D.C. And uh, there should be books in the dealer room there. I, mean, I actually have a table. And so if there aren't any, I'll be bringing some just in case. And I can sell them from my table. So there you go. And that's in November, right? That's, yeah. This year it's the uh, early part of November. Sometimes it's right around Halloween weekend. Okay. Uh, cool. Somewhere around there, but it's actually into November this time. Okay. Awesome. I should have mentioned, too, it's like um, I have signed copies that I signed at the University Bookstore, and they do orders online for those to get them shipped. And even if they want them inscribed, I can make trips up there. That's the same thing with a good book cafe in Sumner, Washington. Um, I can sign books there and have they can ship directly if you're not getting to any actual signing. Okay. How can people find uh, those locations? Do you have links on your website? I did. I'm not sure what. I'll have to look, check my appearances page. But you should be able to go over there to patrickswenson.net and get that. Or if you Google University of Washington Bookstore, uh, you'll find that right. Uh, right. and my title. And the same thing, the Good Book Cafe has a small website. Um, there. And they also have an eBay business um, and other 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 venues where they sell a lot of used books um, to customers. You know, not even around here. So, folks have options. Then, okay, awesome. They have options. Uh, yeah, those are my two choices. My my friend's store here locally, the Good Book Cafe, and then the University Bookstore, which is you probably know is one of the best independent bookstores in the country and has one of the best science fiction sections in the country and one of the best science fiction book buyers, Dwayne Wilkins in the, in the country. Um, and they have plenty of signed books there too. So, and I, or I can personalize them as well. Excellent. If you're in San Diego, Patrick was, uh, just at mysterious galaxy. If you're in San Francisco, he was just at borderland. So, uh, just missed him, him, but the books, I'm sure there are still books there. Yes. Signed and ready to go. I signed, yeah, actually signed some stock there. So perfect. And, uh, Powell's in, uh, the Beaverton Powell's, uh, where all the science fiction writers love to go and sign. Uh, there's copies there as well. And Third Place Books in North Seattle has some as well. And I've made my mark in a few other Barnes and Nobles and things along the way when I see one. Hey, let's stop in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see any in the airports. All the, you know, that's like probably not a big enough uh, item to get into the airport. But uh, yeah, when you've made it into the airport and Costco, you know you're on another level. That's for sure. I know. That's right. That's right. Well, folks, you can learn more about Patrick and the Ultra Thin Man by coming to the show notes page for this episode at adventuresinsci-fipublishing.com, and you'll find links for everything that we've discussed on there. Of course, patrickswenson.net is the place you want to go as well. Patrick, it's been great having you on the show today, but before we sign off, was there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? Well, there's something you started to ask me about the sequel. 
Oh yes, there's a sequel. Tell when's the sequel coming? Uh, out? I get, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 88,000 words into it, so I'm about four fifths done. Uh, the scary thing here is I'm still not sure exactly how it ends yet, but boy, it's getting there, and the characters are getting together, and uh, it's uh, tentatively titled right now "The Ultra Big Sleep." Hmm. Uh, another nod to noir. I want to do another noir title and another uh, different noir author. And if those who read The Ultra Thin Man will understand the importance of sleep even there and even more so. Right. It comes up in, in book two. Do you know when that's <laughs> supposed to come out? No. Um, no date? I mean, I have a one-book deal with Tor, so everybody needs to go <laughs> go buy it and uh, make Tor happy so that they will uh, they will buy a sequel. So at this point, you know, and to have to get finished and get in the pipeline, so probably longer than a year, I would guess. Okay. Unless... I don't imagine they would try and fast track anything, but perfect. Well, we'll we'll keep everyone in the loop. And by the way, our review of the Ultra Thin Man will be coming soon on the the website. So everyone, uh, keep your eyes out for that. Uh, well, cool, Patrick. Thank you very much, sir. It's been great having you on the show, and best of luck with the novel. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciated the time. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventures in sci-fi publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.